Marshall and Sager here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hello, everybody. We had a fantastic guest who was lined up for all of you. I wish I could be reading their name, but unfortunately, we ride it a little bit too tight here at The Realignment, and we book stuff for the day before and so whenever there are scheduling conflicts well it falls on us so marshall what the hell are we going to do today we have to fill some airtime i mean listen the first thing we're going to do is we're going to remind all of our great listeners when you do start your podcast because we get so much incoming about that book ahead of time i talked with a really really impressive guy who works on podcasts and he was saying hey so who are you guys booking june 3rd i was like i have absolutely no idea and he was shocked, and it was also revealed that we had no guest book the week I'm after. Like, dude, I don't even know who we're booking on May 19th. Like, <laughs> we're working on that, so yeah, don't yeah. worry. This is this is really the universe giving us a final lesson. It's May, America's reopening, so we're going to take that as an excuse to also give you guys great books and things to look at. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to give you books that we're reading books that we are going to read, and just some general recommendations, talk about them a bit. It'll be a fun episode, give you guys a chance to learn what we're really interested in and hear from us a bit more. Yeah, so the book um, that I'm reading right now, Marshall, I know you're reading it as well, is Amazon Unbound. And hopefully we'll be able to get Brad um, here on the podcast, Brad Stone. He authored Amazon, The Everything Store. It's a 2013 book. And that book really just completely shaped my insight around the modern internet. Because what it was to me is the story of commerce in the 21st century, as in Bezos, obviously him in and of itself, he's a fascinating figure, but Amazon starting in books, going and literally eating the rest of the world, DVDs, and then goes on into music and then moves into the couches and everything that we buy right now, absolutely loved it, but it ended in 2013, and this book is the follow-up to that, which is Amazon from the everything store to Amazon, the current behemoth that it is right now, web services company, streaming company, Alexa hardware company, all of that. And the thing that's important here, we're asking ourselves, why do we want to book someone like Brad? Why is it useful to think about Amazon? And Really, the takeaway from the book, from my perspective, is Amazon is an effing complicated company. This isn't just a company that sells books, obviously, but it's not just a company that sells the Kindle. It's not just a company that has Amazon Prime Video. It's doing all these different things in all these different markets at the same time. And too often, you see people talking about the topic of Amazon without understanding the weird complicated nature of the company. It's totally fine for you to be a person who's opposed to Amazon and what it does and to be ticked off at the way it's regulated and the way it works and its taxation, worker policy, unionization, pick anything you want from a hat. But it's really important that you read books like this to understand what's actually happening with it. Yeah. I think one of the most impactful things that happened is to combined things, which is that I read Ben Thompson's essay about how the internet naturally selects for monopolies. And I read Brad Stone's book, The Everything Store. And actually, The Everything Store convinced me more than anything that there really can be only one winner whenever it comes to commerce on the internet. As in, Bezos's original vision of The Everything Store does make sense from a consumer perspective. Because when you think about what a zero marginal cost business is, and you think about the endless ability of the internet and the want 
to buy everything. Well, it doesn't actually make sense from an efficient consumer perspective that I would have to go to 19 different websites to buy diapers or buy a ring light or buy a water bottle. At this point, I'm just naming things which are on my desk. Whereas from a consumer and shipping perspective, that's terrible. If I had to go to like three different websites in order to do that, it does make sense on the endless internet in order to have it just be one store. So to me, from a policy perspective, that just really negates a lot of antitrust concern, and we have to start talking a lot more about what regulation looks like and even some sort of like private-public partnership. And I know there's a lot of people freaking out about that, but personally, I just don't think there's any other way around it. And the key thing, just to hit on what you just said a little bit, it's not that there isn't a concern there. It's saying that antitrust exists to deal with specific problems. So what you should be thinking to yourself as a listener is, Given the nature of what Amazon is, given the way the internet works, is antitrust going to address the problem that I'm actually proposing here? And this entire point of conversation brings to mind our conversation with Senator Hawley last week, which we hinted this a bit, but didn't really have time to get into it. He was making the argument that the reason why Facebook and Google and YouTube, they dominate, is because they just have these policies and they've made these business decisions, which destroys their competition. What we're getting at here is... Once again, a value-neutral point. This could be a good thing. This could be a bad thing. But what is probably true, at least from our perspective, is the internet is going to select for these winner-take-all companies. The reason why there isn't a kid-friendly competitor to YouTube, I don't think it's because, as Senator Hawley alleges, that it's because YouTube is anti-competitive and is destroying everything. I think it's just because, for most people... It makes sense to just have one site where they go to to get user-generated content. That's what is going to happen here. I mean, the good Andrew Yang quote you always cite whenever we talk about him is, no one wants to go to the fourth best search engine. No one wants to go to the third best YouTube site. If it turns out you get your kids' content along with your other content at the same place, that's going to make sense. So anyone who's interested in either attacking the power of the companies or reforming the system, regulation, et cetera, should really think from that perspective. What's your yeah. next book? Yeah, my, my next book is actually uh, Lindbergh, the biography of Charles Lindbergh. Lindbergh is a, uh, let's say, fascinating figure, um, kind of problematic there in the latter half of history. The reason I became interested in it is because I just read The History of the Wright Brothers by David McCullough, and I've just kind of been fascinated by the invention of human flight. Everybody learns about the Wright Brothers in school, but nobody ever asks the question, like, why did they do it? It was actually a fascinating time where a lot of different people were working on the problem of aviation. And even then, whenever they did create flight and American innovation, America did not embrace flight until even with World War I, when we had to buy our planes from France, actually, some of our initial warplanes. But even then, nobody cared about aviation until Lindbergh. Lindbergh's flight a popularization of it actually is what spawned Wall Street and the business community in order to start investing in this new transportation medium. And that really is just what changed the entire global economy. It changed the way that we interact all as humans. And I find it a really fascinating flashpoint in the history of human civilization. And here's the obvious question. Who was Charles Lindbergh again? I think people might not always get the reference to that. Okay, so Charles Lindbergh was the spirit of St. Louis. He flew that plane, I think he was 25 years old, from New York 
to Paris in 1920-something. I'm forgetting the exact year. He claimed a prize, which a famous French businessman had said that he would pay from any aviator who could make that flight one way or the other from across the Atlantic. It was not the first transatlantic flight, but it was the first or the longest at the time by about 2,000 miles. The most important part of it was not even about how miraculous of a flight it was, but why it was so important in spawning aviation in the public consciousness. Him becoming a celebrity is actually what created aviation and a lot of different public investment, public consciousness, and more. So I just find that really interesting. What are you reading, Marshall? Yeah, so I've got a couple of things. These are books that I'm either finishing or are just next on the list. So first one is Meet Me in the Bathroom, The Rebirth of Rock and Roll in New York City from 2001 to 2011. Dedicated listeners of The Realignment will know that I recently moved to Brooklyn this month, and this has been a long gestating process for me. I was someone who looked around back in September, October, and just thought, wow, like New York City, any of these really big cities are going to be incredibly huge after COVID. And I just wanted them to come out here. And what's so cool about this book, and it's part of my effort to learn more about the city I live in now, is that it's all about New York after the 1990s, after the 1980s, where you really saw the city coming back from the crime, the controversy, the real post-1970s son of Sam killer disaster. And I really feel like New York is in that type of moment right now. It's obviously a huge cliche to say that, but I'm really excited to do my own little tiny part to bring podcasting to Brooklyn because there's obviously a million people who are trying to do that. Wow. Thank you so much for your sacrifice there. Uh, What are you learning about rock and roll? I don't really know anything about the music business. Yeah. So it's cool because it's really about Indie. It's like indie music in the 2000s. So if you think Mm -hmm. of all the bands that you would think of, like, and once again, this is an example of us dating ourselves. Think of MGMT, Vampire Weekend, the type of things you'd see on. Exactly. So all of those indie bands that really blew up, they came out of this period in New York. So is this really focusing on that specific moment? Because I think all of us should be thinking, knock on wood, post-COVID, how are our worlds going to change? How are people going to be excited? Where's the energy going to be? And I think thinking about that through the context of music is awesome. What's your next book? So my next one is called The Greater Journey. This is another one which was inspired by David McCullough's book on the Wright Brothers. And it's because the Wright Brothers had to spend a bunch of time in Paris whenever they were selling their initial Wright Flyer. And I was like, wow, Paris, like back in the 1900s, really interesting, center of innovation and all of that. And I realized McCullough was so intimately familiar with Paris because he wrote a whole book about it, about Americans in Paris, which is kind of like a niche book. But I was like, hey, I'm interested never really learned about it. And obviously the cliche is like F. Scott Fitzgerald and all those people living in Paris. But there's this really long history, actually, of people like Samuel Morse and Daniel Webster, who all lived in Paris for a long time. And then even um, our own ambassadors and more who played deep and roles in the Franco-Prussian War and how all of that went about. And so I was just really interested to learn about this 
cultural relationship. Francophilia is something that's been dramatically, I think, on the decline since the 19, what, 50s, maybe post-World War II, basically. But there was a period in the 1800s and 1900s, especially in the early time, when Paris was considered the center of the universe. And actually, I've been thinking about going, um, really just because I'm so fascinated by not only the role that it played in the American Revolution, but in terms of how much intellectual influence it actually had on so many important people in our country. What else you got, Marshall? I've actually got an excellent book, which I'm super excited about. I actually want to book this guy for the podcast. It's called An Extraordinary Time, The End of the Post-War Boom and the Return of the Ordinary Economy. It's all about the 1970s because anyone who's been following either the news or discussions on Twitter knows that there's all this talk about Middle East wars, inflation. I'll just read from the back real quick because it really just captures a lot of interest here, which is stagnant wages, feeble growth figures, an angry disillusioned public. The early 1970s witnessed the arrival of the problems that define the 21st century. So I just think for the two of us, especially because we were obviously not born in the 70s and the discourse around the issues Mm -hmm. we're facing today from I think largely fake talk about inflation. That's more about people pumping their own portfolios and narratives than actual economic analysis, but that's another podcast we will definitely do eventually. Just all these topics about the 70s, it definitely rhymes with what's happening today. So just doing an episode focused on exploring that would be huge. So I'm reading this just to prep and think about that. God, that reminds me. I've got that Jimmy Carter biography on my shelf, which I really need to read, called His Very Best. Um, Great book cover, by the way. That's one of the only reasons I even bought it. Um, So the last one I actually just read, I heard this guy on Joe Rogan's podcast called The Comfort Crisis. I actually really enjoyed it, which is that a lot of these takes and health books are like, America's really unhealthy. And the way that you should fix that is by literally not living like a normal human being who works a nine to five. And Michael Easter, who's a men's health journalist, was like, no, there's actually a lot of different things that you can do. If there's one takeaway I want to impart to all of you, it's something called the nature pyramid. I love this concept, which is that one of the easiest ways um, in order to benefit your mental health, if you think of the nature pyramid kind of like a food pyramid, is just three times a week, 20 minutes a day of taking a walk outside critically while not checking your phone and not getting some artificial light or really putting yourself in that mental space, dramatic impact in your general mood. Another thing that you can actually do, Marshall, I got this from a book. I forget which one you bought. I read it on your account. Um, Just looking at pictures of nature. So if you don't even have the ability in order to go outside. I think it's peak performance. Peak performance, exactly. There's always a huge seller on the bookshop, so definitely go check it out, people. Fantastic book. So literally download some nature pics if you don't have time to even go outside or if you live in like a concrete jungle area. Just look at pictures of nature five minutes a day. That even in of itself is enough in order to get something out of it. And then the second step up on the nature pyramid is that once, I think it's every couple of months, going to like on a hike, some sort of five-hour period in extended wilderness or forest. Think like a state park, national forest, uh, national park, that type of thing. Just a day hike. That's all we're talking about here that 
is also been critical in reducing cortisol and all that. And then finally, there's something called like a three-day reset. Whereas if you can, if you have the ability, having a three-day weekend, like a Memorial Day weekend or something like that, where you go camping or you spend an extended, extended period of time, and it, it really does have to be about 72 hours, it can really just help with your mental health. So I found that the nature pyramid is just an extraordinarily useful concept, which pretty much anyone working in nine to five today can at least incorporate in their life in some useful manner. All right, you got a couple more. What do you have? Yeah, so let's do a fun one that you and I both blew through on Audible. Obviously, it's available as a book, but it's an oral history, and those tend to be better when they're done on an Audible book with different voice actors doing it. So it's called The Office, The Untold Story of the Greatest Sitcom of the 2000s. So I'm realizing this has probably been the longest period of time in my life that I have not watched The Office just in the sense that it's on Peacock, and I was not a Peacock subscriber until a few days ago. But uh, I saw this on Audible, I checked it out, and it is one of the most fun listens slash reads of the past several years. It's a complete oral history of The Office from Ricky Gervais founding it in the British version uh, for the BBC in the late 90s, all up until the talk of an eventual Office reboot today, which would obviously go terrible if anyone at NBC is listening. Please do not do it. It will not be a good move. It will not work. That is not a good call to make. But on a broader level, though, it's just so interesting because I love these books that are all about the behind the scenes of these pop culture products. So you don't really think about the degree to which things were actually happening. So you don't think about the fact that the character you don't think about the fact that the woman who played Phyllis was actually just a casting person who said, hey, you should sub in and sit here. And then all of a sudden she becomes a real character on the show. You don't think about the fact the guy who played Toby Flanderson was actually just a director, showrunner, producer who ended up fitting in, ended up making a lot of sense. So it's just fascinating to see how that actually came about. And if you're doing any type of creative project, aka like us doing a podcast right now, listening to a book where you have writers talking about writing, people talking about building something is just so cool. It's so fun. And it actually really pumped me up this weekend. I love the book, uh, especially all the background like you were talking about, about how Toby Flenderson became a thing, even though Paul uh, himself was a writer, about Creed and how he was just a background actor who was just trying to get a day rate. Um, and then they had found out that he'd actually been in a band. They ended up giving him a line, and then he became one of the most famous and iconic characters on the show relative to the amount of screen time that he even got. But actually... What you said there is the key point, which is that when you watch the show, when you're a casual observer, and I know a little bit about this from my production background and from doing here, is that people have no idea how difficult it is and how much thought goes into seemingly arbitrary things. So for example, how much time they spend into crafting the Jim and Pam kiss at the end of season two. Spoiler alert, by the way. Um, if you haven't seen it, or how much character development goes into the season one to season two transition on Michael Scott, how much goes into the background characters of Dwight, about how even the actors themselves think, what would my character do in X situation, given this, this, and that. There's a lot 
so much thought that goes into a, just a 22 minute show or a line delivered in this way or a kiss on the cheek, this type of thing, which people just simply do not even understand how much thought has gone into that. So I encourage you guys to just go and read it. Also, the oral history f- format, not something I thought I would like. Loved it as an audiobook because they have all these different voices. Yeah, so to quick note, it's not the, unfortunately, it's obviously not the voices of the actors themselves, but it's the uh, next best best thing, decent voice cast. So I've got two more books here. Um, So a lot of you will remember we had an episode of Bruno Masai's last uh, September, did really well. It was a really great conversation. It's all focused on foreign policy. We're going to have him back in June. We're talking about that. So I'm reading his next book, which is called Belt and Road, A Chinese World Order. I'm really trying to learn more about the Asia Pacific region, as everyone here who's probably the most intense listeners who are actually listening to this type of content is what we find is that this is something the most intense of you listen to, not our casual fans, obviously. You know, with the 2034 topic, we're obsessed with the Asia Pacific region. So learning more about that and all that is just so interesting. And I'm very excited about that. So we'll check out his book. He's written a bunch of other things. So go back and listen to his episode in the fall and look forward to our episode of Bruno in June. A lot of great stuff to talk about. And our last and final book is also fitting in with our weird French theme, which I don't think you and I had any idea we were going to hit. It's called Revolution yeah, I don't even France. like France, by the way, just so people know. Uh, so like, this is especially weird for me. I mean, I'm weirdly starting to like France. I'm realizing that any sort of Anglophilic tendencies I have are probably just based on exposure. I actually just oh, don't sure. know anything about France. So I was like, yeah, like no, why exactly. would you like? Why would you be exactly. obsessed with France? I'm like, why? Well, I, well, I don't really know anything about France. So, <laughs> part of that process that Sagar and I are both undergoing. Um, my book, apologies for the pronunciation, Spanish, not French, for me. The book is called Revolution Francaise. Emmanuel Macron and the quest to reinvent a nation. So as anyone who watches Rising or looks in between the implications of a couple questions we ask knows, Sagar especially is very interested in outsider candidates who are running against the political establishment, who are not quite the same as the two established parties. So we're thinking of Obviously, he's running as a Democrat, but Andrew Yang falls into this category. Matthew McConaughey is now openly talking about a run for Texas governor next year. And then you have, of course, Sagar's dream of The Rock maybe turning his NBC show into an actual reality. The whole point is understanding this model of folks operating within basically the center and then running against both parties is fascinating because it's a little different than the traditional way we think of upstart candidates. So it's not quite populist candidates. It's not radical third party candidates. It's these very center left, center right, or even alt center types. And Emmanuel Macron is definitely the is definitely the blueprint for that. So reading about him, reading about the struggles that he's faced as he's tried to govern France are really fascinating. I think that anyone who's interested in this broader project of reinventing the political system here should look into how figures such as him have fared going into this process. Yeah, I I can't even tell you how crazy the about face on Macron is. If you think about back to, what was it, 2016, 2017, whenever he was elected? I think it was 2017. 
He gets endorsed by Obama. He tweets all that out. He's hailed as like the neoliberal ascendant. And then immediately he actually becomes like a pretty traditional French politician. And I mean that in the vein of rejecting um, Anglo-Saxon influence, saying that he doesn't want like wokeism to come to French shores. (laughs) Recently, I saw that he went to Napoleon's tomb and he was like, Napoleon is a part of our history, kind of casting himself in France in this like grand ascendant role, but also very critically steeping all of that within a pan-Europeanism of like France as a critical part of a stronger European Union. So he's a fascinating guy. I remember he called himself Jupiterian, which is when I started to warm to him a little bit from the kind of more bland figure. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm probably will read that after you're done because I'm fascinated to learn more about him. Yeah, and when he says Jupiterian, if people miss the reference, he's comparing himself to the um, Greek god, or Roman in this case, god, center of everything. So obviously there's something going on there. But yeah, I just want to capture the last thing you said here, Sagar. And this is actually why he as a figure is so fascinating to me. Um, The second part of this book's title is The Quest to Reinvent a Nation. And I think if we're thinking about themes we cover on the realignment ideas that we're obsessed with is this idea of confidence and how it's one thing for us to dunk on the elites and the establishment or anything but we've acknowledged this there always is going to be an elite there always is going to be some type of establishment you are going to have leaders no matter what this isn't something that any populace is going to change so getting figures with confidence in the country with confidence in a vision for the country with the confidence to note that there are things we have problems with that we could also address by changing that's something important and i'm looking for politicians and we're looking for politicians who could capture that and whether or not macron succeeds in actually accomplishing that vision i think it's one that at their best these types of alternate politicians we're focusing on have a huge opportunity to pursue all that being said thanks so much for joining as you all know this is a huge kick in the pants moment we will make sure our booking is together we have really exciting stuff coming in june so this is a good last addendum to all that so thank you so much for tuning in hope you enjoyed the book we'll obviously put together a special bookshop where you guys can check out what we published and we are excited to see you with a fresh guest on thursday and as always a special thank you to the lincoln network for sponsoring this podcast we'll see you guys later Thank you.